Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me Foster Reeve, who is a plasterer. Hey, Foster, how are you today? Good, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great today now that you're on the program. You know, last time you were on Forster, I called you a neoplaster, but after some consideration, I think you are a meisterplaster. But before we talk about that, let's talk about you. You grew up in Ambler, Pennsylvania, not far from where I did too. What was your journey like from the farmlands of Ambler to Greenport in the North Fork? Well, um, I was unfortunately... um, hobbled with allergies. And that was like the worst place to be. It's like the Delaware Valley. And so I shipped off to Vermont where I went to boarding school and college. So I was there for eight years. And with good frugal Philadelphia family, uh, you had to make your own way. So I got into construction work to get myself uh, a car and, you know, spending money and all that. So worked for some builders up there who were real builders. I mean, they did everything. They basically built the house from the foundation to the finishes. And so eight years of that, moved to New York City with an art degree uh, to pursue fame and fortune. Couldn't wait tables, but I could do construction work and, uh, and got into New York City construction. And there's a bit of plaster, as you know, historically there. And there's also a good Irish population that was very, very talented and fell in with some of those rogues and uh, and had a really good time learning uh, the techniques, the the everything about uh, what it what it is to uh, execute plaster. Then, uh, you know, the art kicked in. I was doing colored plaster walls, doing all sorts of crazy things with plaster. And of course you wind up getting into moldings because people ask for it. And then you start playing with sculpture and you start playing with all the historic ornamentation. You get, take the deep dive down that rabbit hole. And the next thing you know, you're in a very narrow river, but it's a very deep one. And uh, um, I'm still swimming, uh, snorkeling, scuba diving, doing whatever. The whole works. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Excellent. So, um, Along the way, you were an artist. Um, when did you know you were an artist? Uh, you know, it's a funny thing with art. It's 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 all about you know mechanics and thing. I, I really don't even like to differentiate art from uh, you know engineering from from uh, you know the manual trades. I think there's a lot of continuity there. And you'll find a lot of uh, artists uh, that you might see in museums or whatever are really very, very talented um, <clears throat> tradesmen, uh, mechanics, engineers often. And uh, that's kind of where where I knew I had a place in the arts. Um, when I went to graduate school at Parsons, for I had been sculpting since uh, since the beginning for me uh, and went there for a graduate program in painting. 
they had a guy come over from Italy who was a restorer, and he uh, taught us Titian's palette, five colors, how to grind them, how to prepare the linen, uh, what the gesso was on board, you know, all the science behind the art. And you realize you walk into a museum today and you see a Velasquez on the wall. One of the reasons it's, you know, an important work is that it's still there. Um, I had paintings falling apart in my own lifetime. So it wasn't, it's not, there's a lot of science that goes into uh, uh, into art. And so that's always been my, my, uh, my bridge. Right, right, right. You know, I'm reading a book, uh, Rick Rubin uh, is the author, and I think it's called The Creative uh, uh, Art. And he basically, he says that everybody is uh, an artist of some sort. It's just finding where your talent lies. And that's right. interesting what you said. You know, it's like you were saying the construction. I was just thinking when you said that, like, uh, there are artists there that make uh, fine furniture. You know, it's, and and you, you're an artist and you apply your your talent there to to plaster. So let me um, let's speaking of plaster, let's talk about uh, plaster. OK, Um when last time you were on the program, you you started with me uh, on the program. I think the program's now been twelve years, and I recall then that the plaster was a hard sell for uh, for you to uh, many of the builders, especially here on the East End. How is it today? Well, um, I'd like to take some credit for opening people's eyes and hearts and minds, and you know, winning hearts and minds with the notion that uh, the interior skin of your of your dwelling is only benefits from being uh, executed in plaster and it's you know it's it's a constant uh, um, dialogue that we have with everybody on that topic there's you know enormous number of uh, iterations of plaster that can be deployed in an interior so it's getting the design teams on board. It's getting the builder. The builders are really the the main people. I mean, they're the artisans. They're my people. And to win them over is the kind of the ultimate goal uh, because it's the most rewarding when, you know, when when somebody from Van Acker in San Francisco, who's my age, says to me, Foster, I never thought I'd learn something new when he, you know, when we put plaster casings and baseboards and wainscoting into this wonderful house in Pacific Heights. And uh, he, he just thought it it, would, it never could be done. It just didn't make any sense to him. But then, you know, he came, he came to see that it was really uh, a fantastic option for those, uh, for those elements. So uh, those are the, those are the, the rewarding, the rewarding things. But to answer your question, it's, it's a lot of the builders, whether they're on board or not today, they're at least knowledgeable about it and they understand it. Uh, so that's a huge step forward, I think. So what are some of the benefits of plaster as compared to uh, using wood? Well, uh, to keep it simple, for one thing, it doesn't move. So it's mud set like you set stone, uh, but it's you know, mud light. It's plaster mixed with a methyl cellulose glue, which is old fashioned wallpaper paste. It's very natural material. And you're just gluing it to drywall. <clears throat> and so it becomes one with the wall. 
So you turn your heat up, you turn your air conditioning on, you open your windows and doors on a day like today, uh, and then button them up and drop it down to 68 degrees. The plaster doesn't care. And that's huge for people who... Does it expand? Does it move at all? Is there any it, flexibility? It moves it? very, very little, but completely in unison with the drywall itself. So it's there's never a disconnect where it will start to pull away or it will cause cracking at the joints or anything like that. It's um, it's a you know it's a monolithic, as I say, install between the gypsum wall, the gypsum moldings, and the gypsum adhesive. So uh, no screws, no no mechanical fasteners to to pop or anything like that. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very. Uh, other than that, why use plaster? Well. No, I mean, doesn't it have some benefits? Like, I mean, from a standpoint of being green and and maintenance free and stuff like that. Yeah. So the maintenance free is the is the non movement. Um, it's strong. I think one of the things that people don't realize about plaster because they think of old lime plaster, they think you know they can pick it at their with their fingernail. We're using pure gypsum, so it's very strong. Um, it, it goes all the way up to ten thousand psi. We do baseboards in it. You know, people uh constantly say well you can't do that that's not going to work and you know you send them a sample you say here just tape that to your wall and run your vacuum cleaner into it and tell me if you're uh if you're not happy um so uh it's very helpful i think that's one of the things and you know architects roll their eyes at that because you know everything's helpful these days right but it's but it is it's helpful in the sense that an interior, a brand new, brand spanking new interior build out, even at the highest level, is chock full of products that are off gassing. They're they're brand new products, whether it be you know fabricated plywoods or this or that, or your kitchen, and that's a very real thing today. When we button these houses up, they have to you know you do testing on houses these days to make sure that they're hermetically sealed. Uh, I get it. You have air exchangers and all that, but plaster has none of that. Zero. In fact, it's it, it's it's absorbent of uh, of of some you know types of of chemicals. So it's it it's a positive in the landfill, meaning they want it in the landfill because it does not pollute and it displaces and you know and uh, uh, dilutes all the other stuff that they they throw in there. Um, it's incredibly, uh, um, it's incredibly available. We have 10,000 years of gypsum at current, at current usage, and that's known deposits. Calcium is the fifth most abundant element on the planet. Um, it's, you know, it's not a problem. Gypsum that we use is cooked at a very low temperature, 200 degrees, whereas lime or cement is 2000 degrees. So you can imagine the amount of fuel, coal, whatever electricity you have to use to process it. Gypsum is very, very low footprint in that regard. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so that's there's uh, no uh, toxicity. There's no toxicity to it also, right? None whatsoever. Um, you know, if we had a lot of time, I'd go on and on about the history of plaster and how when they started to paint houses with it, lime, I'm thinking of it at the, at the moment, but same chemical compound, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, 
for fireproofing, you know, uh, Europe burned. I mean, the cities in Europe were growing in the 11th, 12th, 13th century, and they would just burn. I mean, these wooden houses packed tightly together with people with fires going. And so, you know, it would jump from house to house and a third of Paris or a third of London would go up in flames. They finally discovered the fire retardant, you know, capability of, of lime. Uh, and uh, they, the, I think it was Francis the first uh, in the early 1400s, uh, I might be getting the date, the the name wrong, but in the early 1400s, 1390, he um, he said uh, he mandated that houses be painted in lime, uh, reducing the ability for the uh, for the fires to spread. And because of that, they produced they started to produce a lot of lime. It it took it took a lot of fuel to do that, but um, it was being produced now. And it migrated itself to the interior because people started to say, hey, the exterior of my house looks better than my interior. And so they uh, started coating the interior of the house with lime, which was a pretty unsanitary environment by and large. And lime is pH 14 when it comes out of the tank. Nothing grows. In, in fact, that kills everything. Um, it is a antimicrobial. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And anything that comes into contact with it dies um, at that microbial level. So they actually credit, you know, I'm not I didn't make this up, but, you know, it may not be fully fact. They credit the decline in the plague with the advent of interior lime applications in. uh, in So the the health. I hate to interrupt you, but. um... I'm going to have to have you back on the program again because you're a wealth of knowledge. So if somebody had more questions uh, for you about Plaster, how could they reach you, Foster Reeve? Well, the website, fraplaster.com, gets you in the door and you can find me and everybody there. Uh, FRA, I'm freeve at fraplaster.com if anyone wants to harass me directly. Uh, and, Great. Uh, Th- thank you, Fosteri, for the education on plaster. This is John Christopher for Real Life Broadcasting on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. Please stay right where you are since we'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me Brian Mormon, who is a former NFL punter and now the founder of the Mormon Group in Ponta Verde Beach. Hey, Brian, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, no, I appreciate you coming on. I know you're busy. We're, you know, especially. Let me ask you a question. Is this like the high season for you now or is like now well, your time to take a vacation? Well, oddly enough, I just got back from vacation, but that's uh, due to the fact that I have such a great team and they covered for me while I was gone. But um, it is slowing down a little. You know, we, uh, as as we all did in our industry, had a, a really good busy run for a couple of years. And then we saw a bit of a lull, um, kind of getting back to a standard type of scheduling that we'd have or, or year, so to speak. Uh, the end of the year slows down around the holidays a little bit. We still get a year round. Uh, amount of business, but it does slow down. And then it started to pick back up around that February, March time. And now we're starting to see as we're getting close to school starting again, things kind of in, in my uh, view anyway, kind of 
calming down a bit, but the, you know, uh, steady, I would call it at this point. Right. Interesting. Um, uh, before we talk, uh, get further into real estate, um, I'm always fascinated by people's life journeys. Um, where were you born? I was born in a, uh, in Wichita, Kansas. I was actually, but I grew up in a town called Sedgwick, Kansas, which is just North of Wichita, a small little town of about a thousand people, maybe 1200 now. Um, but, uh, yeah, so grew up there in a small school and um, really great experience. And then went on from there and, and went to Pittsburgh State University and uh, for my college time. And that's in Southeast Kansas, not Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. So Pittsburgh, Kansas. So that's kind of that's that's uh, kind of where I started and where I where I landed, um, except for, you know, later on when I went into my professional career. Right, 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 right. Let me ask you, you know, I've had uh, Boomer Isaacson on and also Roger mm-hmm. Bear. Uh, and one of the things that they had in common, and I'm sure you have the same thing, is this drive, but more so they had a talent. Uh, when did you realize you had the talent to become a an NFL punter, and what guided you to become one? Well, I think um, – I, I don't know that I ever really realized my talent at the punting position until uh, later in college probably. I, I actually um, went to college on a track and field scholarship, and I was a hurdler. and. Um, you know, speaking of drive, I obviously loved sports growing up. I had a, you know, a dream of being an NFL quarterback, not a punter. And, uh, you know, and it, and it worked out, but I, 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 it meant the world to me to have a college scholarship and, and, you know, coming from a, a school where I played eight man football and it was small and, you know, it was, it, they were hard to come by in football. So I, I was recruited to run hurdles for Pittsburgh state, thankfully. And so when I got there, I decided to walk on the football team, uh, in my second year. And just so happened I had tripped over hurdle and broke my wrist the year before. So in the spring, I started kicking field goals again, thinking, okay, well, I'll just do that. Walked on the team and they didn't have any punters. They had like nine kickers. So um, I said, well, I'll, I'll punt and kick off. And so that was the rest of that. And then um, I do love the story though. Our starting quarterback that year, uh, we were playing for the national title and he came up to me and said, hey, do me a favor, sign this ball because you're going to be playing the NFL someday. And I just, I laughed at him. And I said, um, you know, that, that won't be worth much, but sure. Happy to do it. And, um, still not worth much. Don't want to get, don't get no, me wrong, I doubt but, it, but go ahead. <laughs> um, but it, I, I love going back to that and thinking, wow, you know, um, he had a little foreshadowing, but, um, you know, so I, I don't know that I ever necessarily knew that was going to happen. I think I've, I've, I've been, um, you know, blessed to be in the, in the right place sometimes at the right times, but at the same time, I know it does take a lot of work and a lot of effort. And, you know, there's only 32 positions out there, uh, for those guys playing in the league. And, and I uh, feel very lucky to have, have been able to to be one of those guys for a long time. Well, that's fabulous. I know Malcolm uh, Gladwell says you have to put in 10,000 hours to excel mm-hmm. at anything. Did you kick a football, a football for 10,000 hours? <laughs> I probably kicked it 10,000 times for sure. Um, yeah, there's <laughs> 10, to 10, a lot 000. of reps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I don't know if it was 10,000 hours, but certainly a lot of reps and I think any of the guys that, um, you know, any, any specialists that are playing now or even up to any level, you, you do put in a lot of time and, um, you know, it's, it's such a specialized position now. And when, even whenever I was coming out, there was a lot of guys that played other positions and, uh, you know, guys I played with in the NFL that were former linebackers or, uh, safeties or, or whatnot. And it just so happened that I didn't try to play another position because I had my track, um, background that I wanted to focus on as well in the spring. So otherwise I would have tried to play receiver or something. And, you know, but now the kids are, they're kicking at a young age and that's their, that's their specialty. And, and so there's even more hours that are going into it now than they ever have been. And 
I think you see that um, at every level of how good the specialists are, whether it's you know, high school, college, and, and the professional level of how accurate they are, how powerful they are, and, and um, just how consistent they are. That's great. Well, let me ask you another question. Um, do you think having played the football that that actually gave you the discipline to go to do real estate? Because, you know, a lot of people think it's a glamorous uh, field, mm-hmm. you know? So. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call similarities, but for, I, I love that you brought up drive. I think that, you know, just having that uh, background of of what it takes to, to, um, continue to do something, to be successful. I think with real estate, you have to have patience. And I think for me, it prepared me in a way that, um, it took me three years to make it an NFL coming out of college. And it was, it was multiple times of being cut. Um, you know, I, I was signed by Seattle out of college as an undrafted free agent to me, just in that in itself was a dream come true, but I got a taste of it and I wanted to stay. And, um, and I had a lot of people telling me that it wasn't possible until I finally, uh, you know, made it and I got an opportunity in Buffalo and stuck. And, you know, that, that meant being going to two training camps with Seattle, getting cut twice, going to, um, you know, playing NFL Europe and then, um, you know, getting injured in my second training camp with Seattle, getting that release and then getting an opportunity to go back again to NFL Europe and not knowing if I was going to have a job and then competing against somebody in Buffalo and, and finally um, succeeding with, with making a team, but, you know, fighting and scratching and clawing to stay on that team that first year and then have a successful career. So um, I do believe that, you know, that coupled with, you know, just the whole you know background of, as, of growing up in athletics did prepare me for, for this career because we do go out and, you know, I want to win every listing, um, you know, and I, and I want to make sure that every one of my buyers gets the home that they, they want and that they've been dreaming about and, and looking for and, um, you know, obviously that you have the, the time you got to go find the house, but then you've got to get into the contract negotiations, keep that thing together and, um, you know, get it to the finish line, uh, so to speak. And, and so, yeah, I do believe that it, there were a lot of ways that it prepared me for what I'm doing now. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm just curious when you said Buffalo made me think it's cold up there, especially in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Is that how, how did you end up where you are now? Is it because you said, let's head South? Well, a, a little bit. Yeah. We, uh, when I first got there, um, two of my training camps for NFL Europe took place in Florida, one in Orlando, one in Tampa. And we kind of fell in love with Tampa at first. And, um, you know, I, I, we got an apartment after my first year in Buffalo, thought, well, let's just go somewhere warm for a minute, got a, a, a apartment. But then my special teams coach said, Nope, you need to be back here for the off season. So, um, we decided at that time, like, well, that's where we'd like to spend our off seasons. But my uh, sister had moved to the Jacksonville area. And we had visited her a couple of times. So we ended up coming down here and, and kind of falling in love with it. It was, uh, it's just, uh, uh, it reminds us a little bit more of home. It's a little slower paced and, um, or at least at the time it was in 2002. Uh, so it, things have changed a bit, um, you know, but that being said, it's still a wonderful place to raise a family. And, and uh, you know, we kind of did our, our nationwide tour when I retired of deciding where we wanted to live forever. And, uh, you know, went back home to, to the Wichita area, you know, thinking we'd move back to there or uh, Kansas City, actually, mostly. And then, you know, considered Dallas because I played a year in Dallas. It's fairly close to home. Still no, no state income tax, which was nice. Um, and I always wanted to live in Colorado. And we considered I tried to find tried to find multiple ways to, to um, you know, either move back or stay in Buffalo uh, for different reasons, whether it be a new career or whatever. But, um, you know, when we came back down to, to Ponte Vedra and the Jacksonville area, it was like, why wouldn't we just stay here? 
And uh, so we ended up buying a lot and building a house and and the rest is kind of history. So that's pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of kids have graduated from uh, uh, schools, you know, recently. And I'm just curious um, if one of them were thinking about becoming an agent, what kind of advice would you give them? I think mostly um, I, I would I would definitely go if I were to do it over again, I would go I would probably go into a business background now. That being said, I, I, I think what I did prepared me in, a, in just a different way. I was a, I was a secondary education major. I majored in um, uh, special, or, um, in history. And so I was going to be a social studies teacher. But I think from a standpoint, if you're going to be in, get into the real estate industry, I would I would certainly go uh, the route of, of a business degree and, and, and probably um, even um, focus on, on real estate. And, and the nice thing, at least in the state of Florida is, you know, you, you, um, it, it helps you when, when you're going to get your license and, you know, maybe not having to do, um, you know, continuing ed and, and whatnot. So that's a bonus. Um, uh, but if I had to do it over, I'd go, I'd get my master's and, and, um, some sort of development for real estate or, um, you know, I, I do love the business. So I think that I, I'm speaking a little biasly now, but I think if, if that's the industry you want to get into, certainly I would look into that as far as, um, what you want to do whenever you start to, I also believe too, you got to kind of feel your way through. You may change your mind by the time you get through college. I know I changed my mind a couple of times, but, um, it's, it's a wonderful industry to be a part of. Yeah, it is. Uh, as, as I said before, it's a glamorous business. That's, that's why I'm in it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, just joking. Um, what kind of qualities do you look for in your agents? The ones that you, you bring on to your team or. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, obviously we're in an industry, we, we work in a luxury industry or in a luxury real estate um, kind of market. So, you know, I, I, I'm not looking to grow my team real large. So I, I only work with, uh, I've got three ladies on my team that are extremely, extremely professional and um, very well seasoned. And, you know, I feel a hundred percent comfortable with uh, doing deals with them um, with or without me. And they have their own clients and ones that I refer out to them. And so that's kind of, for me, I, I, I would want to grow organically and, and um, slowly with agents that have been in the business a long time. So I think from that standpoint, that also kind of goes against, um, you know, I've always believed like, Hey, give somebody a chance. Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to say I would never bring somebody up um, underneath me, but I would never ask my agents to do that. And I say that I also owned the brokerage um, with some partners for uh, five or six years. Our, you know, we had the Sotheby's affiliate here in, in uh, Ponte Vedra beach that we had five offices, Ponte Vedra beach, the Island, Palm coast, uh, in town Jacksonville and, and, um, and then later St. Augustine as well. So, um, that was a little different aspect. And then we were, you know, I really enjoyed that side of things of kind of coaching and, and it kind of bringing that athletic kind of mentality of, um, building that team as kind of like a GM with, you know, your team below you and your, you know, your staff. And, and we, we grew the, grew the company up to a point, um, my partners and I to where we ended up merging with one Sotheby's out of Miami and, and so now I just focus on my team. So I've got the, there's four of us now. I just had a, a, another lady, um, Christy Lawson, who you've met. Um, uh, she's on my team now as well. So thrilled to have her. And, and um, you know, we just really focus on, you know, the service aspect of our, of our, uh, our business and make sure that people are getting that, that white glove attention. And, and especially, at, um, you know, in our price point, it's so important. That's fabulous. Um... How's the inventory? 
In, not great in, in 15 seconds in 15 yeah, seconds not, not in 15 <laughs> seconds not great it's 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 still not you know where it needs to be you know from a percentage standpoint i don't have that in front of me right now but um really what we need is inventory we have a lot more inventory and stuff that needs to be renovated and remodeled so the things that are really moving quickly still are the ones that you can move right into other times we you know one thing i really enjoy is the the remodel and renovation and building part of the the business so um, that takes a little more time and those homes, um, they, they've had, they've been sitting a little longer and that's where you're kind of getting a better, probably priced than the ones that, um, are completely done, which you still get a premium for down here. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, you know what, we're going to have to have you back again because I, I didn't get into the, the meat uh-huh. of what's happening in your area. So you'll come back on the program uh-huh. again, I'm sure. I'd love it. Um, right, how can somebody get in touch with you? Uh, it, well, you got my uh, email is just B Mormon, B M O O R M A N at one O N E Sotheby's realty.com or my phone number seven, one, six, seven, eight, three, one, eight, seven, eight. This is John Christopher for real life on the only NPR radio station on Long Island. W L I W 88.3 FM. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to have an awesome journey. have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM. Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.